That made sin look so cool. We are talking about sin today. Get excited for that. We're talking about sin. This morning I uh, had some donuts in hand. I was talking with Russ and Brishan. I asked Brishan if he wanted a donut. And he said, ooh, those little circles of sin. Those little circles of sin. Which Russ and I got a big kick out of because if that's true, Brishan is the chief of sinners. That dude loves him some donuts and sweets. Hey, let me talk to you for a second about my perfect and sinless and sweet spotless little children. Right. I've got two boys, Foster and, De- and Noble. Sorry, our third child, I should know my kid's name. Our third child is going to be named Deacon. Deacon, we're trying to fast track him to church leadership. <laughs> we were going to name him Elder, but that seemed presumptuous. So, <laughs> Deacon. And, uh, but the two, middle, the two other boys, sorry, Foster and Noble, both have middle names that come from men that were really important to Lindsay and I. So Noble Ray is named after his great-grandfather, Ray, Lindsay's grandpa. And then Foster Red is named after a man who was like your grandpa to me. His name was Red Sykes. I've talked about him before. Beside their beds on each of their nightstands are framed pictures of Ray and Red. And so sometimes, you know, probably just to delay bedtime, they ask about those men that they were named after. Both those men have, have gone on to be with the Lord. And so Lindsay and I really relish the opportunity to tell them about those guys. And so as we tell them about those men that ultimately we hope they're gonna be like someday, you know, Lindsay will say, well, Ray was my grandpa and he loved me really well. He took really great care of your nanny. He loved her so much. He was faithful. You know, he was also an elder in the church. He was a faithful man in that sense too. He was gentle and kind. And, and I'll tell the boys about Red. And I'll say, well, he was like a grandfather to me. You know, he taught me to fish. He was a really good man. He was an artist. He was really creative. He was a deacon in his church. So he was, he was a servant of his church, right? And so you can hear in the way that I'm describing those men, you know, in the moment that I wanna introduce them to these men that they will not meet in this life, that the way I'm introducing them is by giving them a list, right? I'm giving them a list of the character traits or the things that defined who these men were. It's a list. And that same thing shows up in the New Testament a lot. You know, in the Gospels, we have stories about Jesus Christ. But in Paul's letters and in other letters, what we get are lists about Jesus Christ. So, for example, in Philippians 2, you know, Paul says that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then what he does is effectively give the Philippians a list of what Jesus was like. Well, he was one with God, but he gave that up. So he was humble. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was obedient. He was a servant, right? He did this for the service of all. It's a list. Another list is in Galatians. We know it as the the fruit of the spirit. You remember this, this list? So the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Last night, my boys were wrestling and when they wrestle, they like to pretend they're, they're superheroes. So Foster said, I'm Superman. And Noble said, I'm the fruit of the spirit. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that means what you think it means. And, uh, but in some sense, you know, he's right because the fruit of the spirit is describing a person, right? It's a list describing Jesus Christ. You know, these are the character traits of Jesus Christ. And so the spirit, the manner in which Jesus Christ himself lives inside of us should transform us to check the boxes off that list, i.e. to be more like Christ himself. 
So as you're forming a list like that, which the New Testament does several times, there is another list that is formed at the same time, on the other hand. You know, if on one hand, this is what you should look like, on the other hand, this is what you shouldn't look like. Or this list describes the kind of person you shouldn't be. We call those lists vice lists. Uh, Jesus gives us a couple of those lists. He gives us one in Matthew 15, Mark 7. Paul gives us some in Romans 1, Ephesians 5, and Galatians 5. In fact, right before the fruit of the Spirit, we get this other list, kind of like the anti-fruit of the Spirit. And it goes like this. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's pretty serious. And the takeaway is that our behavior, our choices matter, right? They matter a lot. But if you were to look at all those vices in that list, and then in all the other vice lists that we have in Scripture, what you'd find is that they're all a little different, that they're all pretty long, they're hard to remember. For instance, this probably isn't a memory verse you've tried to get here anytime soon. So over time, in the tradition of Jesus and Paul and other New Testament writers who tended to condense things to lists from time to time, Early church fathers, preachers, writers tried to condense these lists that we have throughout the New Testament into one that was really easy to memorize, right? And so, for example, in that last list, impurity and debauchery, those are really closely related. So it's possible you don't need to mention them both. So eventually what these guys do who are trying to condense all these lists into one is give us a list of seven, and you know it as the seven deadly sins, the seven deadly sins. And you're probably familiar with that because of like Brad Pitt's movie Seven. All right, some of you probably saw that. And, but it's in all kinds of books and stuff like that. The Seven Deadly Sins of Cooking, for example, right? It's just pop culture has really taken it and run with it. I've got a book on my shelf in there called The Six Deadly Sins of Preaching. Apparently he ran out of steam. Couldn't think of another one. <laughs> some of you who've listened to me for a while, you have a couple recommendations for him. You can look them up, The Six Deadly Sins of Preaching. All right, so in the final list, it's best to think about the final list like a tree, that tree that we started with in the opening video. And as you look at this tree behind me, you can see on the branches, maybe difficult to make it out, but that's what makes this artwork cool. Each of those seven sins there on the branches. So vainglory, gluttony, avarice, envy, anger, sloth. Some of those are old words, which we think it's kind of cool to stick with those. We'll explain them over the, the coming weeks. But it's best to think about this list like a tree, with each of those branches, those seven branches representing one of those sins. But what everybody who's written about the seven deadly sins says is that the trunk of that tree, the core, the main sin that causes all those branches to, to sprout out, that sin is pride. Pride. The trunk of the tree is pride. So the way that the Bible thinks about sin is a lot more than a list. The way that the Bible thinks about sin is a power that enslaves us. Sin gets us to do what we don't want to do. Paul talks about that in Romans 7, that he does the things he doesn't want to do, and that's because sin is keep making him do it, right? Sin is enslaving him. And so it's important to think about sin maybe in two categories. You've got sin with the uppercase S, you know, the capital S, 
That's pride, right? That's what some had named it. And then you've got sin with the lowercase s, right? Which doesn't mean those things aren't as bad. It just means that those things branch off from that main sin of pride, right? Those are how that main sin of pride reveals itself in our life. So how do you cut down a tree? You may remember when Lindsay and I moved here a month after we moved into our house, a tree fell on it. You remember that? Actually fell on both of our cars and our house at the same time. So we had three insurance claims. It was awesome, right? And uh, we moved into that house and I remember the real estate listing said, you know, a park-like yard, a park-like yard. What that meant was there's a bunch of trees you're gonna have to get cut down, right? And so don't buy. But we came from Texas where the biggest trees, you could pretty much jump over them, right? But we've had to cut down six trees since we moved into that house. And so if you were to ask me, how do you cut down a tree? Well, it turns out I'm kind of an expert in that, right? And what we tend to say when asked that question is, well, you go out to the trunk, you take a saw, you cut it down at the trunk, you fell the tree, the whole thing comes crashing down. So let me ask you this, as you look at the sin in your life and you think about that sin, that tree of sin that's growing in there, and you take that approach of going down and chopping it down in the trunk and being done with it, well, let me ask you, how's that going for you? Right, probably not great, probably not great. And the reason is that we don't deal with our own sin. You know, sin, capital S, is not something that we just master for ourselves. You know, the whole good news of the gospel is you can't do it, but Christ can. Right? That Christ handles our sin. But the way Christ does it, you know, Christ could choose to come and just chop down the tree at the trunk and be done with it, but that just doesn't seem to be the way that Christ operates. You know, as I've watched them take down these six trees in my yard, what they do is climb up in the tree. One guy who's really brave climbs up there and they begin to cut it down limb by limb and lower it down. I think that's kind of what Jesus does. I think he climbs into this tree of our life, of our sin, and we've been angry for a long time. And Jesus just begins to work on that limb. He's got this saw and he's just working at it. And one day that limb just breaks free and it falls to the ground. And then he moves on to this other limb and it, maybe it's lust. And we've been struggling with lust since we were boys and God just moves up into that limb and he begins to work on it until slowly it falls to the ground too. And ultimately the goal is that by the end of your life, what's left is this rotting trunk, right? That the tree and everything that gives it light and life is, is dead, right? It's no more. The fancy theological word for that is sanctification, right? That's, you can pay me for that later. The really simple idea there is that this is the way that God makes us more like his son over time, makes us more and more holy. That's the way that he works. Which brings us back to the tree. And what I wanna think today about is that sin of envy. How does envy work in our life? Will you look with me at Titus 3? Titus 3, 3. This is what Paul says to Titus about envy. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. All right, Paul's pointing out there in that second line that to be in sin, as we've discussed, is to be enslaved. To be in sin is to be enslaved. But then there in the third line, he brings together two branches that we don't really think will go together, malice and envy. If you don't know what malice is, he explains it in the last line, it's hate, it's hate. And what we tend to think is that hate has to do with people and envy has to do with stuff. And so those two things can't be related. 
I rode in a, I rode in a bike race recently, like a pedaling bike race. I was really excited about it. I'd, I'd worked really hard to be ready for it. I was, I was really excited, my first bike race. And what I learned after going to this bike race is that bike racing is basically a sport for middle-aged men who shouldn't be wearing spandex, but still are. Right, you see way more than you want to see. Right? <clears throat> but in addition to spandex, as I pull up into this parking lot at the beginning of the race by the start line, I notice something else. And that is that nobody actually looks at each other. They look at your bike. Right? And the reason they look at your bike is that there is this assumption that the quality or really the cost of your bike directly corresponds to how fast you ride that bike. And so the better your bike, because this is a race, means that I'm more threatened by you because you're more likely to ride it fast. How do I know everybody was doing this? Well, because from the moment I pulled into the parking lot, I was doing it too. In fact, I'm riding down the trail at one point and this guy comes by me on this really nice bike. For reference, it's probably like an eight to $10,000 bike, which is just silly, That's silly. <clears throat> But I find myself looking at this bike, you know, here I am pedaling, looking at his bike, and I'm thinking, that's a really nice bike. You know, Eric, what do you think of that bike? Well, I kind of like that bike. You know, I bet that bike is real nice to ride. You know, I bet I'd be faster on that bike. I need that bike. <laughs> and then I crashed. No, but that would have been an awesome preacher story if I had, I didn't crash. <clears throat> so at this moment, all I'm dealing with is I'm coveting his bike. I'm dealing with greed. I want something that I don't have. It really has nothing to do with him. But because this is a race, it's a competition, right? So beneath all those layers of covetousness and greed is there's, there's something more sinister going on there, right? Because it's a competition, not only do I want that bike, but I wish he did not have that bike. And that's envy. That's how envy's different. Envy operates as though all of life is a competition. All of life is a competition. And this is how it's really deeply committed to pride at the trunk of that tree, because the only reason you care about that competition is if you care about how you place in that competition or how you're ranked in that competition. And so, <clears throat> like middle-aged bike riders in spandex judging each other based on their bike, we live you know, in this world, let's be honest, where everybody is constantly being judged by what they have and don't have. Okay, what possessions they have, what achievements they have, how successful their kids and grandkids are, right? How wonderful their family vacation is. Constantly being judged by those things. And so, when I look on Facebook, for example, and I see my friend's family vacation that looks so magical, and I can't afford that vacation, or maybe I'm taking care of an aging parent and I can't go on that vacation or my kids are back in school and we can't go there. At the same moment that I'm envious that they have what I don't have, right? At that very same moment, I find myself resenting that person because everyone else can see they have what I don't have. And in this invisible competition of life, it's obvious they're winning and I'm not, right? And everybody can see it. So that's how malice, hate, and envy become one and the same thing really easily, okay? Because even if I say all of life's not a competition, I really want everybody to know I'm winning. Has anybody ever seen the movie Amadeus? 
Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, it's, it's about two composers, Mozart, who you probably know, and Antonio Salieri, who you may not know. They were contemporaries of each other in the composing world of the time. And Salieri actually has great recognition and fame in his time, but Mozart arrives on the scene and he gets all of the gifts that Salieri wishes he has. And so Salieri finds himself hating Mozart. Finally, he has a hand in Mozart's death. So fast forward years and years later and Salieri is, is nearly on his deathbed. And this priest comes to visit him and Salieri wants the priest to know who he is. And so he says, let me play you some of my tunes. So he has this little piano beside him and he starts to play one of his songs. And the priest says, I'm sorry, I don't recognize that one. And Salieri says, ah, ah, I know another. It was a major hit in its time. Let me play this for you. And he begins to play that song. And again, the priest just shakes his head. He says, let me try one more. And he begins to play this song. And the priest, his eyes light up. And he says, that's a charming song. I know that song. I didn't know that you wrote that song. And he says, I didn't. That was Mozart. That was Mozart. And I think that's this really powerful window into just how deeply envy runs into our lives, right? How it can lay buried for so long, even long after that person that we envied and hated is gone, and we find ourselves still wrapped up in the same hate for them, still envious of what they had or have that we don't. And I think what you notice there is that the object of envy will seem like it is a thing. But in truth, the object of your envy is an identity. You want to be the kind of person that has those kind of things. And you want everybody to know you're that kind of person. Now, if you don't kill people, for example, like Salieri, or if you don't steal from people what they have that you don't, you know, if this is just a feeling you feel in your heart for a minute when you're checking Facebook and then it kind of passes, is it really such a bad thing? Envy. Is it really so bad? In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca Condick DeYoung makes this really, really great point about envy. I never considered it before. She says, we tend not to envy movie stars, celebrities, famous people, the rich and famous, because we don't put ourselves in the same category as them. You know, they're living this like alternate reality that's not real, we don't compare ourselves to them. She says the people that we're most likely to envy are the people who are most like us. So this is why Salieri envies Mozart because Mozart is just like him, he's just better. All right, so this is the point she's making. The people closest to you or the people with the potential to be closest to you are the people you are most likely to envy at times. Right. And what that means is that the people who are most able to support you, encourage you, challenge you, walk alongside you, are at the same time the people you're most likely to hate. Isn't that a powerful thought? Let me follow it up with this question. Well, where are you going to find those people? Look around at church, at church. I mean, that's where the people closest to you should be and likely are. Which is to say, envy probably exists right here. You know, I think for young people, for HYG, for example, 
You know, maybe it's the, the enviousness of the kid who gets the cell phone first. Or the kid who gets asked out on the date. The kid in the group that everybody likes and wants to be around, the one that's funny and stuff like that. And those of us who are older wish that we could tell those kids in the youth group, well, those things don't matter, right? Those things aren't gonna matter for much longer. Just wait, they're not gonna matter. What we don't tell them is that something else is gonna take their place, right? That we're gonna find new reasons to envy the people that we sit beside at church. You know, maybe, maybe we, we envy that person who got to retire early or the person whose grandkids are so accomplished and doing so well. Or we envy that person who's not caring for an aging parent when we are. Or we envy that person who has this host of really beautiful young children and you're struggling with infertility, right? Or sometimes we envy people because of seemingly good things. Oh, I wish I prayed like she prays. You know, I'm never gonna pray like that. I just wish that I could pray like her, right? We envy people for all kinds of things and we envy them right here in this place. And you know, I'm convinced that's why so many vice lists in the New Testament, so many lists of what not to do include envy because the writers in the New Testament knew envy is gonna show up at church with the people you're closest to. I mean, I think that's why Paul said, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not envy. He's actually talking about church and not a marriage here although it applies to marriages as well. All right, let me end with this thought then. Those are the cautionary tales about the sin of envy. Let me end with this thought. If all of life is being played out in the midst of this invisible competition, at least that's what we believe, let me challenge you by pointing you to what Paul says about that competition. And he says this in Titus 3, immediately after that verse we just read. Let me read it to you. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. There it is. Being hated and hating one another. But, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying. Okay, we're entering this series on sin. It's gonna be a really fun series. And this is the seed I wanna plant in your heart to grow alongside that seed or tree of sin. And this is ultimately the good news of the gospel, right? And it's this, that your worth has nothing to do with your worth. That's what Paul's saying here. Your worth has nothing to do with what you've acquired, what you have attained, what you have achieved, or what you possess. You know this, but just let me remind you. It has nothing to do with the stuff that you have. It has nothing to do with the accolades that you've won. It has nothing to do with what other people think of you, right? It has nothing to do with the things you think that you need to change the way that other people think of you. It has nothing to do with any of that. Your worth is based totally and entirely on the grace of Jesus Christ 
who saved you, not because of righteous things that you had attained or acquired for yourself, but because of his justice and mercy, right? That's why he did it. Who saved us not because of anything we have accomplished, but because he is infinitely gracious and good. That's what Paul's saying. It's not a competition. It's not. You know, I think when Christians play into that competition, we convince the world that we are, we are just like everybody else. Right, that we're no different because we're playing the same competition. But the truth is, if it's a competition, it's like one of those t-ball games where everyone's a winner, right? You don't have to compete, you don't have to jockey, you don't have to cheat for the grace and mercy of God. It is free, it's a gift. That's the thing about grace. You know, and you can't be proud of a gift because you didn't earn it, right? Okay, you can't let that sin of pride creep up as it relates to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ because it's a gift that he secured freely for you at the cross. So it has nothing to do with how much you're worth and everything to do with how much he thinks you're worth, right? Which is everything. The seed I wanna plant in your heart as we begin this series is really simple and it's this, that you are a child of God on whom Jesus looks down and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased and that's all that matters. That's it, that's it. If you, oops, sorry, getting carried away. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I'd invite you to come forward today. We'd love to baptize you this morning in the waters of forgiveness and mercy behind me. If you do know him, if you'd love prayer today, we've got shepherds who are in the back who'd love to receive you back there for prayer. Will you stand as we sing? A thousand times I failed, still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again?